Okay, okay, a few of you have. That's good. That's good. Um, yes, the power of the gospel, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, several weeks ago, I was praying, all right, God, after we kick off this series of Ready, Set, Go, and we kind of get our theme ready for the year, and I'm going to get to about February, and I'm going to, I'm going to want to know what I'm going to preach on, God. What, what do you want me to do? And in my prayer time a few weeks ago, uh, I was prompted the book of Romans, the book of Romans, the book of Romans. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, I've, I've heard of pastors who decide to preach through the book of Romans, and that was like 15 years ago they started, and they're still in it. <laughs> and uh, so preaching through the book of Romans is a bit of a, a daunting idea. And as I began to um, meditate on, God says we're supposed to meditate on his word, so I began meditating on the things in Romans I already know. I began reading the book of Romans and studying and digging in and trying to discover some other new things about Romans that I'd missed before, things that the Holy Spirit would help me land my eyes on now. And uh, as I began putting all that together, I said, I got to do it, God. So I don't know 15 years or what it's going to take. Um, I don't actually don't think it's going to take that long. We're going to take some chunks. We're hopefully going to get through about half of chapter one today. And at that pace, in 32 weeks, we'll be done. Um, so, uh, we'll hit some highlights. We'll take some chunks. And I don't think it'll take that long to get through the book of Romans. But um, I do want, for reasons I'm going to lay out here in just a few minutes, I do want us as a church to go through this book, to understand why Paul wrote this book. It's different than his other letters. There's so many similarities between things like, you know, Colossians and Thessalonians and Ephesians, and, and there's specific reasons why he wrote each of those books to those churches, and the Holy Spirit guided him in that process. Uh, Romans stands out as unique. Because of its uniqueness, Romans has been, and other books have done the same. I, I don't want to discount Philippians or, or Colossians or any of the Gospels. I'm not going to discount the book of John by any means. We went through that a few weeks ago. We talked about belief. Um, I'm not going to discount any book of Scripture because you could get saved reading the book of Nahum. <laughs> you can. <laughs> um, but Romans has had a unique uh, place in the history of the church as a book that has led people like Martin Luther to discover the power of faith and the reality of God's grace and that there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. And a book like Romans led Martin Luther to do what he did to try to reform the Catholic Church, eventually split off from the church, start the Lutheran Church, uh, which was a pretty good church. And in many ways, there are pockets of that Lutheran Church that still are really good churches. And there are splinter groups and split-offs and different synods here and there. And, and the reality is that any church that's been around for a while, because it's led by people, can get squirrely. And so just as pastor of this church, I want us always to go back to this book. If we ever encounter a teaching that seems like maybe it's going somewhere, even if it's coming from leadership within the assemblies of God, I got to make sure it lines up with this book. And if anything I ever say from here seems a little squirrely to you, come talk to me because I'm a human like you. It goes back to this book. And in particular, the book of Romans has played a role in reforming many churches over the years, getting us back as, as the big church 
capital C church, the kingdom of God, getting us back to what the truth of the gospel is. And so whether it was Luther or Augustine or John Wesley or any number of other theologians who became great servants of God in their time, the book of Romans has played a big part in that. Romans stands out as unique. One thing about it is it's longer than the other Pauline letters, which doesn't really matter that it's longer. I'm just pointing out that it is. It's over 7,100 words, where the average Pauline letter is about 1,300 words, so it's long. The book of Romans is God-saturated. On average, every 46th word, every 46 words in the book of Romans is God, as if Paul was trying to bring us back to who the main player in this game was. It's God. It's God. There's no other New Testament book that uses the word God as much as the book of Romans. There are two short letters that use God's name more often, 1 Peter and 1 John, but because they're short and they throw God in like every 13 words, it's more, more saturated, but it's shorter. Romans being of a such length has God so much in it. The other interesting thing about the book of Romans is it doesn't really deal with any specific behavior issues. If you read the letters to the Corinthian church, Paul's dealing with some stuff. You read the letters to Thessalonians or Colossians, Paul's dealing with some stuff going on in those churches. Romans is not written to a church to say, hey, here's what I hear you're doing right and doing wrong, and here's how you fix stuff. Romans is much more concerned with the timeless truth of the gospel and the, the central need for the gospel to remain at the heart of what the church is all about. This church in Rome was not a church that Paul planted. The other letters that he wrote, he wrote to churches that he'd started. He went to Thessalonica, established a church, left and wrote a letter back to him. He went to Colossae, planted a church and wrote a letter back to him. Rome he'd never been to. Rome he didn't start. We don't even know how Rome did start, but there's a hint in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, in, the, in the, the day of Pentecost when it says, Jews from all over had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and it lists the different places they'd come from, and it lists that there were people from Rome in that crowd that day when Peter began to speak in tongues to all the people. And so it's likely that out of Peter's great message on Pentecost, there was a group of Jewish people uh, Jewish believers, those who believed in the Jewish faith, who had come from Rome to be part of the Passover to celebrate their Judaism, who heard the good news of Jesus, and they took it back to Rome and likely are the ones that started that church there. So this was a church without a true apostolic beginning. This was a church that began because some people were changed by the gospel and because it was so real to them that when they went back home, they said, we can't deny this. We need to get together, and we need to, to, we need to celebrate this newness of Jesus and who he was as Messiah, and, and we heard how he, was, you know, how he lived his life, and Peter told us the story, and we believe he was the Messiah of God. And so they went back to Rome, and I'm sure when they got back there, there were some Jewish folks in town, maybe some family and friends, that they got to tell about the fact that, hey, we've been here in Rome, and you know, social media didn't move things back then like it does now. So they would have got back to Rome and said, guess what's been happening in Israel the last 30 years? There was a baby born in Bethlehem, and his name was Jesus, and he's the Messiah that was promised of God, and we didn't even know it, but we went there and we heard about it, and it's real. And so this church was born in Rome. And the good news of that church, the good news that that church discovered was that it wasn't just for the Jews, but it was for all people. And so we see throughout the book of Romans at different times where Paul addresses 
the Jew, the Gentile, the grafted in, the different themes, because this church in Rome was made up of all kinds of people that had discovered, who had realized the truth of how much God loves them, had realized the power of the gospel to transform their lives. And so Paul writes this letter to this church in Rome. And so the question has to be asked, if Paul wrote this book somewhere around the year 55, so 1,965 years ago, if this book was written that long ago to that church, does it have any bearing on 2020 today? And of course, the quick answer as believers is, oh yeah, it does. God's word is timeless. Yes, absolutely it does. Let me point out to you a couple things in chapter one that give me all the confidence that the gospel and the message of the book of Romans has never been more important. Never been less important either, but never been more important for any culture than for today. Look with me in Romans chapter one. Verse 18. This is Paul in the year 55, writing probably from from Corinth. He was about to head to Jerusalem um, to go back there. He would end up on trial, and within a few years, he would find himself in Rome on house arrest. But this was before he ever got there. He's writing to this church 1,965 years ago. And he says this, Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Is there anything in that verse that tells you their society is at all like ours? Do you know what the Oxford Dictionary word of the year was in 2016? Just four short years ago. Post-truth was the word of the year four years ago. Post, and this is how the dictionary defines it. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief and experience. In other words, truth and facts don't matter anymore. Your personal beliefs, your personal experience, and your emotions, and how you interact with reality, that's more important than truth. It doesn't surprise us too much that that's what our word of the year would be in 2016. When you look at culture, apparently they had the same problem almost 2,000 years ago. They suppressed the truth. In verse 25 of Romans 1, it says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You know, we we suppress truth. We take this truth of there being some God who made us and we, we push it to the side because after all, we are the pinnacle of evolution to this point after billions and billions of years. Therefore, we worship ourselves and our own accomplishments and God can go sit on the shelf somewhere. That's what our culture says today. They were doing the same thing back then. Verse 26 
For this reason, because they suppressed the truth, because they put God on the shelf, because they didn't want to have anything to do with God, they wanted to worship themselves, for this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. That one stands out to me as unique. Are we not living in a society that loves to invent new ways to be evil? Invent new ways to be self-satisfying. Invent new ways to please ourselves. Invent new ways to get more for myself. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Do I need to say anything else to say, to prove to you that this letter was written to a culture just like ours? Perhaps Romans is relevant today. So if Paul introduces the book in this way, then perhaps what follows is the message that needs to be heard in that culture. What message is the most important message that Paul could give? What is the most important thing that the Holy Spirit could inspire to Paul to give to the church in that day? I would argue that whatever that most important message is that that Paul got from the Holy Spirit to give to that church in that day is probably the same most important message that we need today. What is that message? I can boil down Romans into two main themes, and this is the heart of the message. One, the gospel, and two, the grace of God. Have you ever heard of the Romans Road? The Romans Road is this path through a couple verses in the book of Romans that leads you to the cross. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the path through the book of Romans. Those of you who have ever been taught how to share the gospel have probably encountered the Romans road. There's illustrations of it galore all over the internet in books. You just type in Romans Road, you'll get it. Pictures of pathways with signposts that have these verses on them. Why? Because Romans has this theme woven through it more than any other book of the Bible on how you get saved. Sure, Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Absolutely, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel is all throughout the New Testament, but there is no other book like Romans that gives you the theological pathway and the understanding of exactly what it means to be a sinner separated from God, to embrace by faith the grace that God has given us in Jesus Christ who died for us, The fact that eternal life then is the reward, and the way that we get that is by believing in our heart and confessing with our mouth. Romans has the clearest illustration of the gospel in Scripture. And perhaps to a culture like they were experiencing in first century Rome, 
perhaps in a culture like we have today, the most important message that God could ever send out is this message of the gospel. The second theme besides the gospel itself is the grace of God, and that breaks down into a couple different things. One, first of all, how gracious God is. The fact that he would love us in the first place. That is the grace of God. And secondly, is how marvelous is the grace that he gives, what he gives because he loves us. So there's the grace of God, the fact that he is gracious, and the grace of God, that gift of grace that he gives us. The fact that God loves us in the first place. You've heard me say this before. You've heard it from other preachers, I'm sure. But in Romans chapter 5, I call it the, the divine initiative. The fact that the one who started this was the divine God himself. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Scarcely will someone die for a righteous person, it says. But perhaps if you're good enough, someone might dare to die for you. We were the exact opposite of maybe good enough. On the chart of good enough and not good enough, we were down somewhere below not good enough. And in that moment, Christ died for us. It's the divine initiative of God's grace that he starts the whole thing. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And not just were you justified. Not just do you get to go around in this life understanding that there's a God in heaven and he loves you. But you have been saved from the wrath that you deserved. For if while, verse 10, for if while we were enemies... If, think about this, while we were enemies, when we were down below the not good enough standard, while we were there, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If God thought that much of you when you were so worthless to him, now that he's made you valuable to him, how much do you think you're worth? Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The God of the universe looked down at pitiful, lost, orphans, undeserving, dirty, unclean, wicked, sinful, deserving wrath. The God of the universe looked down on us and said, I love them so much. Just the way that they are, I love them so much. So I will reach down and I will lift them up out of that pit. And all who call on my name, I will set upon a rock and I will clean them off and I will make them beautiful and glorious in my sight. I will put the righteousness of my son on them. And now what does God think of you? If you bought an old beat-up car 
rusted out, towed it to your shop. You're like, I love this car, and I'm going to restore it. And you take the time to pour the labor of love into that vehicle until it's restored all to original, and it's beautiful, and you can see your reflection in the clear coat of paint you've put on it, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. How much do you love that car now? If your kid decides to go in and mess around in the garage when it's a pile of rust bucket and he bumps up against it, you might say, hey, try not to knock any more rust off of them than you absolutely have to. But once it's completely restored and you have this rare gem and child walks through and starts scuffing his dirty coat up against the, it's become more valuable to you, hasn't it? Because you've poured your labor of love into it. So if God loved us enough to die for us when we were poor and destitute and lost and put us up on a rock and cleaned us off, what do you think he thinks of you now? I'm getting way ahead of myself. I wasn't going to get to chapter 5 today. I was just going to introduce that. But That's how much God loves us. That's the theme of the book of Romans, that God loves you so much. He is so gracious. And the way he loves us is through the gospel. So he is gracious, but he also then gives us grace. He gives us strength for the day. He gives us eternal life. I've got a whole list of these. I'm going to try not to spoil all of them. But just go in your mind to Romans chapter 8, if you know what that talks about, where it says he has made us more than conquerors victorious in this life and victorious forever that is the gift of god not only is he gracious in who he is but the grace that he gives is so phenomenal and that is the theme of the book of romans the power of the gospel which displays the graciousness of god and the very grace that he pours out from himself to us So put some of those things together then. If first century culture is similar to our culture, if culture has maintained itself for all time in desperate need of rescuing from God, because that's where first century culture was, desperate for God's rescue. That's where we stand today, desperate for God's rescue. That's where we stood in the dark ages, desperate for God's rescue. That's where we stood in the 1960s or the 1840s or whatever decade you want to, just go to that decade. Where was culture? Standing there desperate for God's rescue. It has maintained itself there for so long. And we, the church, some of those rescued of God have been placed into it or brought out of it. If culture maintains itself in that desperate need of rescuing from God, and if that desperate rescuing happens through the message of the gospel, as Paul's inspired letter to the Romans seems to suggest, if the gospel is the number one way to rescue that culture, and if you and I are called to go be part of rescuing the perishing, then you and I need to be able to embrace, receive, and understand and articulate this gospel. It's nice to be nice to people and tell them you do it because you're a Christian, but can you articulate the gospel? 
Prayer, care, share. Look for opportunities. You know, pray for your friend. Look for opportunities to care for them. But if they never hear the name Jesus out of your mouth, you're just a nice Christian friend. And that, I, um, that is my prayer as we go through the book of Romans, that we become articulate messengers of the gospel, more so than ever before. If Romans is the most thorough explanation of this gospel, then spending perhaps a few minutes in it once in a while is not a bad idea. Or making it become the theme of what we do here for the next several weeks isn't a bad idea. Let this book, let us approach this book with our eyes wide open, with the Holy Spirit very present, working within us to help us understand what's going on here. And spending time doing this, at worst, becomes just a strategic activity. But at best, it could become personally life-changing for you, and it could become effective in rescuing the culture around us. And you get to be a player in that game. Paul understood that. In Acts 20, verse 24, he understood what the importance of this message In Acts 20, verse 24, it says, I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may do this, finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul understood the urgency of this. This is what led him to want to go. This is what sent him off on his own for a few years to to meet with Jesus in such powerful ways as he grew in the Antioch church. And then from there, it's what drove him to leave, to go out with, uh, with Silas and to go out with Barnabas and to go out with others to plant churches in places where no one had heard the gospel before. It's what drove him to go, was this reality that the culture is in desperate need of rescuing. I have the message, therefore, I must go. Church, ready, set go. Let's look at Romans chapter 1. Let's back up to the first verse. Romans chapter 1 starts this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, a bond servant, a slave. I am, I am subject to Jesus Christ, and he calls the shots in my life. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just his introduction. There's nothing there. Have you ever done that to one of Paul's letters? You read the introduction, yeah, this is Paul and this is Timothy, and together they're writing a letter to this church. There's probably nothing there. Let's get to the good stuff already, okay? All right, good. So verse 8, just kidding. Uh, Let's back up a little bit. 
Is there anything in there that strikes you as interesting or odd? Like, why not just say, hey, church, this is Paul. I'm writing you a letter. Here's what I want you to know. Why put all this in here about David and... Was there any debate in the first century to the legitimacy of who Jesus said he was? Or did everybody just fully sign up right away? A little bit of debate, right? Why, why did Joseph decide very early on in his relationship with Mary, why did he decide to put her away quietly? Because there were some people walking around saying, yeah, sure, Mary. <laughs> sure, Joseph. <laughs> Makes sense. You know, you're still a virgin, Mary, and all of a sudden you've got a baby in you. You know, we've been to biology class in high school. Like, we know how it works. There was debate in the first century of Jesus claimed who he said he was. And you can trace through Mary and Joseph who their biological parents were. And so physically, he was descended through Mary, who was his biological mother. He was descended from David. So writing to this church in Rome that had more or less established itself probably without, apostles, without an apostle being over, the, over it, there may have been some conversation in and amongst the community about, well, you tell us that this guy was a virgin, or not the guy, the girl was a virgin, Jesus was born of a virgin, that doesn't make any sense. So Paul begins there. Descended from David according to the flesh. That's where he got his X chromosome. From where did he get his Y chromosome? Well, in verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. Would you have believed it? Would you have believed in first century Rome that it was possible for someone to be conceived by the Holy Spirit? Sitting here today, looking back on it, of course we believe it. Because we're Christians, right? There's reason to wonder, perhaps. Did anything happen that would have proved that maybe it was true. Did Jesus do anything? Did anything happen to Jesus? Was there any part of his life that could possibly verify that he was something besides just a regular human guy? It says it right there in the end of that verse, doesn't it? He was declared to be the Son of God by the Holy Spirit, and here's the stamp that proves it, by the resurrection of the dead. Let the debates about whether Jesus is the Messiah end the minute he comes back to life. He could be hanging on that cross, saying all these strange things to the crowd where they didn't understand. I thirst. Father, forgive them. You'll be with me in paradise. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Like anybody could have said that stuff, right? Hang him on the cross, sure. He seemed to endure an extra amount of beating, and he didn't get mad at us, but he's just a really patient guy. The minute that tomb was empty, it was settled. And the beautiful thing about the resurrection is it's not just a story that we read in Scripture. It's corroborated by the secular world back then. <coughs> I don't read a ton of it, 
but there's material available out there that shows that Jewish historians who would not have wanted Jesus to rise from the dead write in their history books that something happened there. And they try to excuse it away, but they can't. And the reality is, is that Jesus showed his power of who he was when that tomb was empty three days after he died. It was settled. It was done. And you and I can look back on that and say, all right, he proved who he was. He proved his message. Therefore, I can believe in it. The other thing I noticed there in the introduction is that Paul says in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. What is it that Paul is called to do as he shares this message? What is the end game? What is the goal? Is his goal just to preach it and get out of town? No, his goal is to preach it and to let people know that there's a, there's a faith that you need to have in this God. And there's an obedience that has to follow. And there's a transformation. And he goes on through the rest of the book. And as I said before, you get to places like chapter 8 where it talks about us being more than conquerors. And he, Paul says it's not just about, okay, cool, Jesus died on the cross for me, great. No, it's about beginning to live a life of victory and what obedience to Christ looks like. And that's what Paul was called to do. Let's go on to verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why does Paul want to go to Rome? I mean, hasn't he been enough places? Life expectancy in first century Jerusalem was not all that long. Some of you would just be a miracle to still be alive. <laughs> the majority of this room would be a miracle to still be alive back then. I mean, life expectancy, I mean, you maybe get to 50 back then, you were an old person. How old was Paul? We don't know for sure. But if he was within the weeks after Christ rose and ascended to heaven, if he was in charge of a bunch of the Jewish people and watching their coats and supervising the death of Stephen and other, others that happened early in the book of Acts, he was already well into his adult years then. This book of Romans wasn't written for another probably 25 years. I mean, he's getting up there in age. I mean, he's no apostle John, but he's up there in age. Why is he still worried about traveling all over the place? Is he just looking for a nice European beach to settle on and retire 
No. He's still going. He wants to go to Rome because he says, until the day I drop dead, I'm going to be about sharing the gospel. He doesn't want to give up. He knows that when he goes to see them, in, in verse 11, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, namely, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul wants to encourage them in their faith, but what also does he want? He wants them to encourage him. I've talked to several of you in this church before about this very thing, that when I begin getting together with other people in the church and starting, starting to think, well, I'm just not getting anything. You're missing half of the point of church. That we are here to encourage each other. And the day that you're not here in this church, we all miss out on something. We don't get to be with you. So I'm sorry that all we ever do is disappoint you, but please keep coming back because we need you. The church needs each other. Paul says here, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to a church of, I don't really want to call them fledgling believers, but we don't have any history that says they were some huge, vibrant church with great leadership. They were just some believers that, that wandered out there from Pentecost and got together and started meeting and started believing in Jesus. That's all we got. And Paul says, I can't wait to be with you because you're going to encourage me. And I know I've got some encouragement to give to you. This mutual encouragement should be a hallmark of our faith. That when I'm with you, you encourage me and I encourage you. And, and, and we build each other up in that way. We know that Paul wanted to eventually head on to Spain. As far as we know, he never got there. Because by the time he got to Rome, he was there as a, a criminal of the state. And he was put in prison and he ended up dying there. But he didn't want to just end in Rome. He wanted to get to Spain. And again, not to, not to get to the nice Mediterranean beaches and just relax and work on his tan. He wanted to get there. And who knows? If Paul had been able to get to Spain, would he have wanted to go somewhere else? I think he would have. I don't think he ever would have been content to say, I've gone far enough, God. Let somebody else take over now. He did have disciples. He did have those he was mentoring. He talked to Timothy, and he, he told Timothy, look, Timothy, I'm, I'm at the end here. And he gave Timothy words of advice to how Timothy could be the leader of the next generation of Christians. And so he certainly understood that his time would come to an end, but he was never thinking that I'll get to retirement age, you know, 66 and a half or whatever the number, you know, probably would have been like 12 back then, but because <laughs> they keep raising it. He was not concerned about that. He wanted to go. He wanted to go. He wanted to go. He was ready. He was set. Let's go. Let's go. Why? To share the good news. Why did he want to go to Rome? Why did he want to get to Spain? Why did he go to the places he'd already been? Why? Why wear yourself out, Paul? Why let yourself get shipwrecked, snake bit, beat, spending a night out on the ocean you know, overnight? Why let yourself go through all that, Paul? The answer is contained here in these two verses, and this is where we'll end this morning as we look at Romans 1, 16 and 17. Which many people would say are the theme verses or key verses for the whole book of Romans. 
I think there's a lot of different important verses, so I won't, I won't give it that label, but I will tell you these are, this is an important place to fix our eyes as we end today. 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's just break this down a couple words at a time and let this be a theme for us throughout the book of Romans. I am not ashamed. Why be ashamed of something? Have you ever been ashamed of something? What is it about something that makes you feel ashamed of it? When I think of things that you could be ashamed of, maybe you work for a company that just continually can't deliver, and you've got to keep picking up that phone and explaining to customers, yeah, I'm sorry we dropped the ball again. And you begin to get ashamed of a company that won't deliver on its promises. Or maybe you're part of some team, and every time you go out to perform, you just lose. You just lose. I mean, it's been 108 years since they won a World Series. I mean, who wants to be their fan? They did win one. And I have a picture of Wrigley Field in my office. I am a Cubs fan. But you could begin to get to a point where you'd be like ashamed of being like, this team just doesn't deliver. This thing I'm a part of just doesn't. What they did, I don't want to be associated with them because they're not, nobody, you'd be ashamed of it. Why would someone be ashamed of the gospel? Does it not deliver on what it promises? It absolutely delivers. And God in his goodness over delivers, gives us more than we deserve when we turn to him. There's no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. And perhaps, perhaps going out into a culture that would be anti-God, anti-church, anti-Jesus. Maybe you might feel a little bit of, I'm ashamed to share it because I don't know what they're going to think of me. Well, maybe it's because you don't know how to articulate what the gospel is. Maybe you're trying to sell your church. And because of the mediocre preacher, you're ashamed to share your church. Maybe you're trying to sell the wrong thing. But if I can articulate to someone how much God loves them, you want to refute that? I'm not ashamed to tell you that God loves you. I'm not ashamed to tell you that Jesus died for you because he loves you. I'm not ashamed of that. You might think I'm crazy. That's fine. We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel because it delivers. It will do its work. And if we can present the truth of the gospel and not some made-up churchy thing... I mean, why aren't you ashamed to hand out tracts, Fred? You just give people tracts, right? Not ashamed, right? Because you know the truth in there is true. And you're not trying to sell some, you know, cutesy, churchy thing. You know, we've got the best padded chairs in Crystal Lake. Come to our church. <laughs> you know, I, what are you trying to sell? Sell Jesus. 
Just tell people about Jesus. You don't need to sell them. You just tell people about them. And they can choose to buy or not. We don't need to be ashamed, church. Why? Because the gospel is good news. If you had good news to share to somebody, now I understand bad news. Bad news can be difficult to share. How do you tell somebody that they didn't make the grade without hurting their feelings? How do you tell them they didn't make the team without hurting their feelings? How do you, how do you tell them you don't like the picture that they drew for you without hurting their feelings? Like, that's hard. Bad news is hard to share. Good news is easy to share. If I knew that you had just won some great prize, I'd be just fine to tell you about it, wouldn't I? I would think. Hey, you won. You did it. You got an A+. You won the tournament. The results are in. Everything's great. The gospel is good news. I don't need to be ashamed. One, because it delivers. Two, because it's good news. It's not bad news. It might look like bad news if you have the sandwich board, the end is near, you're dying and going to hell. Like, you could make it out as if it's bad news. And the reality of hell, it's true. And that's part of the story of the gospel, that what God has redeemed us from. But we don't start there with, here's a tract, I got bad news for you, you're going to hell. Start with, hey, I got good news for you. God loves you. Jesus died for you, and as the conversation goes, you can talk about why it's such good news, because you were headed to hell. It's good news. Don't be ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the that subtle nuance. Does the gospel give power, or is the gospel power? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It is power. The gospel is not a self-help program. This is not God resourcing, okay, I'm going to give you what you need now so you can grab your bootstraps and go for it. No, the gospel is power. The gospel transforms. The gospel forgives. The gospel makes new. It is the power of God to forgive sins to change your life. Jesus, when one of his uh, episodes in the Gospels where he, he says to a guy, hey, your sins are forgiven. And the crowd says, oh! who gave you the right to forgive sins? And what Jesus say? Oh, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and go home? And the guy picks up his mat and goes home and they go, oh my goodness, who gave him the power to heal people? Perhaps the same person that gave him power to forgive sins. The gospel is power to transform, to first forgive your sins and then transform your life and help you be that overcoming, victorious Romans 8 Christian who is more than a conqueror. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Salvation is a good thing, amen? What have you been saved from? You got a list? You're going to make me do all the work again, aren't you? <laughs> save from, save from the, the power that sin has over you. Save from the penalty of sin that you would die and go to hell. Save from, from hopelessness and despair. Save from, save from yourself, as I heard. Save from all sorts of things. You've been saved from that. 
And not only were you saved from that, but you're also saved to something. You're saved to eternal life. You're saved to victory. You're saved to what Christ calls the abundant life. You're saved to something, to a hope that won't disappoint, to a reward that won't perish or spoil or fade. You are saved from something, and you're also saved to something. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it is the power of God to salvation for how many people? For everyone. Is this universal salvation? We're all just saved then? No. You have to believe. Each individual has a responsibility to act on this knowledge, which is why Paul was so passionate about going and taking the message of the gospel out to Rome and to Spain and to infinity and beyond. He would take it anywhere. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, meaning that it came first for the Jewish people, but it's not just for them, it's for all who would believe. And verse 17, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. From faith for faith, live by faith. You all got that, right? It's just easy. When you read the Bible, do you get to things like that? And you're like, what is that? Whoa, whoa, wait, slow down. From faith, for faith, live by faith. Do the, pro, do the, do the prepositions mean anything? Does, what does from faith mean? What does for faith mean? What does by faith mean? And the best way I can simplify this down is that you've got the gospel, this love of God, this graciousness of God, this reality of who God is and what he's done for us, and it's behind a curtain. And if that curtain could open and you could see it and embrace it and experience it, it would change your life. So, from faith, is the, speaks to the source. This is where the revelation comes from. The revelation of God's grace and his gospel comes from faith, the source. So, the way I experience the reality of who God is is from a position of faith. It's behind the curtain. There's a whole stage up here loaded with the gospel, and you bought a ticket to the show. That was faith. It was your faith that there was something there. This is, this is the source by which the curtain is now drawn back. And now that you've seen it for faith, the purpose of, so the source is this faith that I had. Now for faith, it's, it's that I might get more of it. It started with a little faith. and God opened it up. And now for faith, so I can get more of it. So I, can, I have access to it now. Starts with a little, open it up. Oh my goodness, now I've really seen it. And then the righteous shall live by faith. It is that faith that gives us the ability to go out and live a transformed life. You heard there was a great show in town. You've seen the infomercials on it, right? You pick. Shen Yu Circus, you know, whatever. Uh, Rosemont Theater, buy your tickets now, whatever it is, you know. And so you're like, hey, that looks interesting. I have enough faith in that show that I'll buy a ticket to it. So you buy the ticket. 
You go to the show. The curtains open, the show goes on, and now you're experiencing it. And you realize that your little bit of faith you had that it was going to be a great thing is all realized. And now you have enough faith that you're like, wow, I, I, it's not a little bit anymore. Now I know it was a great show. So what are you going to do? You're going to tell somebody else. You should buy a ticket to that. Nah, I don't know if I believe you. No, believe me. Please believe me. Okay, they get enough faith to buy the ticket. Now they go see it. <gasps> and what do they do? They're filled with so much. This is so awesome. They're like, well, I'm not going to tell somebody else. The power of the gospel changes a life. The way it starts is by you having faith, this little source of faith, this little, little glimmer of faith. Okay, I'll buy the ticket. And then you begin to experience it, and it builds your faith. And then by faith, you go out, and you live in such a way that others hear about it. And that was just, that's the story of Paul's life. He encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. And it's like, holy cow. So he spent some time growing in his understanding of what Christ did and got to really know it. And then he went out. And that led him ultimately, years later, to where he penned this letter to the Romans where he articulates the gospel of God, the graciousness of God, and that grace that comes from God as a gift to help us live victorious lives for him. And we're called to do the same because our culture is just like theirs. And God needs some good, solid Christian people to get ready, get set, and to go for his glory. God, thank you this morning for just this beginning of an adventure into the book of Romans. God, there's so much, so much rich, deep truth throughout this book that I'm longing to discover with my brothers and sisters. Some things I already know, some things I'm beginning to prepare for. And God, there are such deep things I believe you're going to reveal to me in the weeks ahead. And God, I am so excited to share that with my brothers and sisters in Christ. God, help us to understand the importance of going to share the gospel. God, use this time that we spent together to encourage us and to move us into action for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.